Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of Students for a Better Future Radio. I'm your host, Stormy Tinkle, and we are live. And once again, hello everybody, welcome to tonight's edition of Students for a Better Future Radio. Um, we are live and on the air, and um, tonight we have an awesome show for you that we're going to be talking about a special topic called the Federal Reserve. Um, and in a few minutes, we're going to bring, bring on our guest, Dr. Murray Sabern, who is an expert on this, um, who's also written several books. And by the way, um, Many of you have heard of the creature from Jekyll Island. I believe this is my guest host calling in, Cisco Acosta. Are you live I'm on here? I am. Um, yes. Actually, before we get into tonight's topic, I do want to tell everybody that I went to Jekyll Island. Um, and Jekyll Island is real. And it's a, a small <laughs> island located... <laughs> outside of out of Georgia, um, you know, you can get to it. Well, we flew into Savannah, um, you know, but you, you can actually drive to it. Um, it is a secluded island. It's probably one of the most beautiful islands I've ever seen, despite what has taken place there and, you know, what, what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, but there is a lot of history and I'd like to encourage students to go down there to visit, um, you know, anybody. You know, you can land in, in Savannah or, or uh, Jacksonville, and it's about an hour's drive from there. And I'm just even taking the nature aside from the the history of the Federal Reserve. And right. m- most people in New Jersey, they didn't even know a place like Jekyll Island exists. They thought they it was a Frankenstein Yes, they did. <laughs> and they still look at me like it's some kind of Frankenstein movie. Um, but it's not. And it's you, you, once you go down to visit there, you can visit the historic center and you see the cottages of J.P. Morgan, um, Goodrich, the Vanderbilts, and, and all of the elitists of the early 19th century. And, you well, know, they actually, I, by the way, they actually wanted to keep it secluded because they didn't want people to know what was going on down there. Right. Right. And also, also, uh, they forget that the Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt and, and the J.P. Morgans, those those guys are basically, um, they were involved in the uh, in slavery, too. Yes, the they federal. were. And, right, yeah. and most people don't know that. And the the idea of this was, you know, people could fly over this place and go to Florida and, and you know, and go on vacation there where they can have their meetings and do whatever they wanted to do down there. But the, right. the history of the Federal Reserve has fascinated me. And it's, I'm sure it's fascinated a lot of people. You know, because we have, mm-hmm. you know, we have this banking system here and, you know, and and I'll tell you the truth. A lot of people I talk to don't even know what the Federal Reserve Federal Reserve does, you know, what, and what its well, duties are. Well, you know, that's true. That, that is true. That that is true, Doreen. But I have to tell you that the Federal Reserve takes its orders from the IBS, the International Banking Settlement Corporation. And Mr. Uh, Murray Sabri should know about the IBS. Yes, I believe he's online right now. Dr. Sabrin, is that you? I'm here. Thank you, Doreen. As far as I'm late, uh, I had a meeting that I thought was going to be ending a little bit earlier than I thought it would be, so I apologize for getting uh, here so late. 
Good to see. Can good to hear tell, uh, hear you again, yeah. Mary. Thank you so much for yeah, inviting me. Can you me. tell us? Um, yeah, Ruben was t- mentioning the IBS. Can you tell us what that is? Well, the Bank of International Settlements is considered the central bank's central banker, mm-hmm. and they essentially settle accounts uh, among the central bankers of the world. And uh, I haven't done a whole lot of research on the um, uh, Bank of International Settlements, but uh, essentially uh, this trying to coordinate the uh, global uh, international monetary system uh, because uh, right now it's a, a very tenuous situation because uh, we've gone right. off the gold standard since 1971. And prior to that, uh, President Roosevelt took us off the gold standard domestically in 1933 when he uh, took office and he uh, called in the, the people's gold in an executive um, uh, act. And uh, people at that time said that this was going to uh, create more and more power in the hands of the federal government and um, be the engine of inflation because when you remove the ability of people to protect their wealth um, uh, by confiscating their gold, then the government almost has a li- uh, gets a license to print more and more money, which they did during the Great Depression. And when President Nixon took us off the final um, stage of the gold standard where foreigners were told they no longer get dollars for uh, – they no longer get gold for dollars, that's when the inflation was unleashed uh, in the 1970s when we had the double-digit inflation in 73 and 74, and then again in 79 and 80. And uh, fortunately, we've, inflation has been coming down since, um, uh, since uh, Reagan took office. Uh, we've uh, averaged around 2 3% inflation, which is good for consumers, but unfortunately, uh, we've gotten two big bubbles in the 1990s with the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble. So the money that uh, has been printed by the Federal Reserve has not gone into raising consumer prices as they otherwise uh, happened in the past, but they've gone into raising asset prices, real estate, uh, collectibles, and uh, and by doing so, it creates these bubbles uh, in Silicon Valley and, and surrounding area because uh, when people have inflated asset, uh, uh, assets, that they uh, can cash them in, sell them, and buy housing. And that's exactly what happened in the United States. The housing bubble really began in the mid-1990s, uh, which is one of the charts I have in my manuscript that I just completed. And uh, you see that trend of housing prices from the mid-1990s when the uh, dot-com bubble really got underway to uh, 2007 when the housing bubble burst, and uh, we know what's happened uh, since then. Uh, housing prices came down, and now they're back up again. So we're in the third bubble in the last 20 years, and uh, many people think, and uh, I think they think they're correct, that the next bubble can be even greater than the previous two bubbles. Well, Mar- Mary, uh, I, I, I was in Basel, Switzerland uh-huh. uh, about... Two, uh, about a year and a half ago when I went to visit my cousin in Holland and, uh, and I did stop in Basel and Basel I was talking to a banker over there at an event and he, he's telling me that every year all the central bankers they get they go to a meeting and that's where they actually set the interest rates for all the countries all over the world hmm. the, the, and that's basically that's the headquarters of the major central bank, the the, the bank of all banks. So uh, that's something. It's a, it's a very fascinating, and they're they're located right. I mean, Basel is not a big city; it's right on the French-German uh, border. But you can see the bank stands out. I mean, it's huge. It's a huge building. Well, th- this is this is the uh, problem that we're having around the world is that uh, uh, people in the United States, Europe, Japan, uh, we're dealing with a monetary banking system that is not a free market system. And when you go away from a free market system, uh, you create distortions. What do we mean by, by a distortion? Uh, you have a boom followed by a bust. Uh, booms are okay as long as they're based upon real savings and real economic activity, 
and an economy can only grow a certain amount. Uh, it cannot grow greater than the, than the politicians or the central bankers think it can grow. It has to be based upon real savings, which gets transformed into capital goods, which then gets transformed into consumer goods. So there has to be a nice balance between the demand of the public for consumer goods and the ability of people to save to create uh, capital goods, and that balance is what makes an economy uh, increase uh, smoothly year after year. And so when that, that gets out of whack because of these artificially low interest rates, and we've had two, two episodes of that uh, in the last 20 years, and, uh, and we know the other distortion that we have is that people are getting very low interest rates on their savings. With inflation running around 2% a year, we should be getting at least 4% in our savings accounts, so we're getting, what, close to 0%. So that, that shows you that the central banks are there to subsidize the commercial banks because they're paying us virtually nothing. They make loans, which they uh, get 3 4 5 6 7%, whatever the rate is based upon the uh, risk of the, um, of the borrower. And... Uh, and, and, and therefore, you have a, a completely distorted financial system, which has to correct. That's what a recession, depression is all about. And so this is not a natural part of the economy. It's an unnatural part of the economy. And um, the reason I wrote this book is to point this out, that the Federal Reserve cannot manage an economy when they claim they can. And the more people know about it, hopefully that will be translated into the people demanding that we go back to a monetary system and a banking system that is consistent with free enterprise principles. And we know one of the biggest problems of the banking system, the reason that we have central banks, one of the reasons we have central banks, is because banks have a flawed business model. They take in deposits, which is our checking account money and our savings account money, and then make long-term loans, loans for three years, five years, seven years, ten years, whatever the case may be. So economists call that a mismatch between their liabilities, which is the checking accounts and the savings accounts and the time deposits, and their assets, which are long-term um, uh, loans. So that has to be corrected. And uh, the sooner we, we get that correction in the banking system, the, the better the banks will be but they'll be making a lot less money than they're making now. I mean, banking profits are just incredibly high, uh, given the amount of assets that they have. And the uh, banking stocks have done relatively well. Uh, recently, they've come da uh, down because um, interest rates have come down, and, and they like to uh, uh, long-term rates have come down. So they like to make money that's called the, the, the spread between short-term rates and long-term rates. And so when long-term rates come down, which they have in the last six to nine months, uh, their profits go down. And so uh, the banks would like to see higher uh, interest rates uh, to a certain extent so they can make more money on the difference between what they borrow from us and what they lend uh, to their customers. So um, uh, I don't know how long this system can last. That's the $64,000 question. If this system can continue to... Um, uh, be in place with uh, fiat currency, which means that there's no precious metals backing to them, which we had for uh, from 1792 up until 1971. So for nearly 200 years, the dollar was backed by gold until Nixon really declared the U.S. dollar bankrupt or, uh, in 1971 when he told farmers they couldn't get uh, gold for their dollars. So uh, we have a serious problem in this country because everything is so distorted. Uh, I live next to New York City, and you look at the real estate section of the New York Times, and apartment prices are just incredibly out of sight. I, um, the rents are out of sight. The uh, apartments are out of sight. The townhouse prices are out of sight. We have 10,000 apartments going for 50 to $100 million at a clip. Um, it, it just shows you that all this money that has been created has uh, has uh, uh, flowed into the upper echelons of the uh, uh, economy. So people in the one percent, uh, they they make the most money during an inflationary boom, which we've had on and off for a base for the last uh, uh, forty five years. 
Yeah, well, I, so, I have to um, say, I have to oh, go, go, go ahead, ahead uh, Ruben. Okay. No, well, I, I just want to ask something about the, um, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Ruben, then I'll go. Well, go ahead, Ruben. Mary, I, I, I wanted to touch on, on the situation goal uh, for several decades. Foreign governments have been basically the United States government has been holding gold mm-hmm. for a lot of these countries like Germany and uh, I think uh, Germany and, and, and France. Mm-hmm. And some of them are basically kind of getting they're getting nervous and they've been asking mm-hmm. for their money uh, their gold back. Mm-hmm. And it, it appears it appears that the federal government uh, and the Federal Reserve has been hesitant because I think they gave them a seven-year uh, time limit right. to basically um, repatriate, repatriate their, 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 their goal back to their own country. And now we're wondering if, there, mm-hmm. if the goal is there and also in Fort Knox because there's three locations for the goal, Federal Reserve Bank in New York, the Gold Bank, uh, um, Federal Reserve Bank in New York, Fort Knox, and then I believe it's a military base, uh, West Point. Those are the three yes. locations where the United States government mm-hmm. supposedly is holding gold, but a lot of these countries are wondering if the gold is even there. Yeah. What's yeah. your take this, on that? Yeah, this is why we need total transparency as a Federal Reserve. We need to know exactly who they bailed out during the uh, last financial crisis because uh, some people have argued that uh, they they created trillions and trillions of dollars to uh, bail out um, central banks around the world and governments around the world. Uh, We need to know exactly are they going into the stock market, the bond market, the currency market, the gold market, the commodities market to uh, affect prices. And so these are things that we need answered uh, because uh, People have made these claims, and the Federal Reserve officials have uh, denied all of them. Uh, but the point is the Federal Reserve can ask their Wall Street bankers to make trades for them. So we don't know if this is happening, so we need to have full transparency. That's why one of the ways of knowing what the Fed is doing is auditing the Fed and seeing exactly what transactions they've engaged in, what conversations they've had with Wall Street banks and other banks around the world, and see exactly right. where the money has been flowing from uh, the, the Federal Reserve through the Open Market Committee. That's the group of people in Washington chaired by the uh, Janet Yellen, the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, that uh, meets every six weeks to determine what short-term interest rates should be, the Fed funds rate, the rate that banks borrow, uh, from each other at, at overnight uh, loans. And so we need to know exactly uh, who's been getting this money, where the money is being deposited, because that's how money, the new money is transmitted from the Federal Reserve to the banks uh, into the rest of the economy. And so these are the questions that people uh, are asking, and the Federal Reserve should be forthcoming as to what's happening. But since we have such a fragile international uh, financial system, uh, every time uh, they say something that is misinterpreted, uh, the markets could uh, go down 5-10%. We've had these flash crashes the last few years. Um, so we're in a situation where uh, central bankers uh, think they know what they're doing by controlling the uh, money and credit situation around the world, and all they've been doing is blowing up bubbles that uh, always end in um, and catastrophe. And so uh, we need uh, people in Congress to do their oversight of the Federal Reserve. Since the Federal Reserve was created by an act of Congress in 1913. And uh, the people have the right to know exactly what the Federal Reserve is doing since they do have uh, a legal authority to create money, which is an incredible authority when you think about it. We have to work to get money. They just enter a few um, uh, entries into a computer, and they literally can uh, write a check for a billion dollars, $5 billion, $50 billion. Uh, uh, they can buy any, virtually any asset in the world they uh, want. In 1980, we had the Monetary Control Act that started to deregulate 
for the interest rate that banks pay us. Uh, that was regulation Q. We no longer have that. And so when I read right. the uh, Act of, of 1980, there was a clause in there that basically said the Federal Reserve can buy assets uh, for whatever purpose it deems necessary to um, stabilize the financial system. So that means, from my perspective, that uh, they can do anything uh, in the financial world and they really don't have to report on it because uh, they have a, a huge balance sheet and we don't know where all the transactions are placed on their balance sheet. Or are, We know co- corporations have a lot of off-balance transactions, so maybe the Federal Reserve has oh. a lot of off-balance sheet transactions that we don't know about, and therefore uh, you have a secret financial um, uh, entity the Federal Reserve and its uh, affiliates around the world uh, trying to manage the world economy. And we know that they, this is a form of socialism because uh, money should not be in the control of a central authority like a, a central bank, but every government needs a central bank in order to bail out its budget deficit because the central banks around the world have been buying up government debt which keeps interest rates down on the debt. And so central banks have been an integral part of growing government for the past two, three hundred years. Remember, our central bank is just over 100 years old, but other central banks, going back to the Bank of England, is over 300 years old. So central banking has been around a long time, and we've had um, financial catastrophes um, periodically for the last 300 years. But the, that's the bad news. The good news is, and this is something I always stress that I give and, and discussing this in my financial history of the United States course, is that entrepreneurship is alive and well given the amount of real wealth that's been created in the United States and around the world. And that has nothing to do with central banking. That has to do with uh, uh, inventions, entrepreneurship, innovation, creativity, whether it's social media, whether it's um, uh, computers, whether it's um, uh, clothing, whether it's uh, new food products, whether it's Amazon and their retail uh, business model. So entrepreneurship is alive and well, given that you can go into the Costco's of the world and the Walmart's of the world and the upscale retailers of the world, and you can find products uh, from uh, the dollar store, if you will, to uh, the Neiman Marcus and the Tiffany's of the world. So we have an array of products at different prices, which shows you the great dynamism of the not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy, which means that um, people will still be creative despite the, the, uh, the roadblocks that the Federal Reserve uh, and other central banks uh, put, in the, um, uh, put in place uh, by distorting the economy. And so fortunately... Uh, the people have overcome this uh, because of their creativity and that uh, uh, we can look, and I think this is where Warren Buffett is correct, that um, over the next 50 to 100 years, the economy will be a lot bigger and more productive and the standard of living will be greater. But short term, you're going to get these periodic uh, downturns which we know are very painful because people lost their house, they lost their jobs, they lost their business, and some people never recover from uh, uh, going through an inflated bubble because they overextend themselves and uh, they expand too quickly and uh, they lose a job in an industry that is downsizing. So if you're 50 or older, uh, it becomes very difficult to retool yourself to get back into the job market. Well... I, I, I'm gonna disagree. I'm gonna have to disagree with Mr. Buffett. I think we're heading we're heading for a cashless society. We're we're seeing that in India. We're seeing mm-hmm. that in, in, in parts of Europe. I think the uh, the the the, uh, the fiat, the dollar. I think it's eventually the the global the globalists. They want to basically modify the way we do business, and it's going to be more on a cashless base because they, they'll be able to track and manage the underground economy a lot better. What's your take well, on I, that, Murray? I, I, I think that's right. their goal. I think that's their goal, but I don't think it's going to happen because uh, I may be wrong. I've been wrong in the past <laughs> about trying to 
predict what politicians are going to do and how this thing ends up. But uh, to call in all the dollars that are out there uh, is going to be a very tough situation because uh, there is a huge um, underground economy and people can uh, uh, change their dollars into hard assets, whether it's gold, silver, uh, and other assets. Uh, People have been doing that for um, hundreds and hundreds of years. It's putting their money in a store of value that is uh, not subject to confiscation. Um, remember, we had gold confiscation in 1933, and then in 1974, uh, President Ford, after he took over for President Nixon, um, uh, lifted the ban on owning gold, and people have been buying gold. American, uh, uh, the U.S. Mint gold sales, I don't follow that closely, but um, uh, between the gold and the silver, uh, uh, there were years where they were sold out very quickly. So I think people are catching on because of the Internet. They're learning more about the Federal Reserve, about uh, what happened in Jekyll Island in 1910 when the bankers got mm-hmm. together and basically wrote the Federal Reserve Act that was presented to the Congress and then President Wilson signed in December 1913 in, um, in, the, um, uh, in, 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 in making the American people believe that this was a, 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 an act that was going to uh, uh, corral the bankers. But it was, bankers wrote it because it was for their protection because it created the Federal Reserve as a lender of last resort. And the banks wanted that because the, um, they were going bankrupt throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. They would print up money, um, or they would make loans. Uh, they would print up money before we had the Federal Reserve. And so uh, they were bank run. There were banking panics throughout the 19th century because the banks were, were printing money that was not backed by specie, gold and silver. So the bankers realized that they that this system could not last, and therefore they, uh, they uh, needed a central bank that would bail them out when they got into trouble. And we've seen that happen since 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created. But getting back to your point, Ruben, about a cashless society, that, that's the dream of every central government because then they can track every transaction. Uh, right, right now they, they know everything because uh, if you pay by check, by credit card, they, that, those things are on record with the banks and credit card companies, so they know that. Um, yeah. And that's why in third-world countries, cash is the preferable method of payment because then the government can't track it. So uh, well, this, is going, this, could be, this could be one of right. the great uh, political battles of the 21st century of governments wanting to uh, reduce the uh, um, use of cash and the people saying, no, we want to have cash because... Uh, then we are in control of our monetary affairs. So this is going to be an interesting um, evolution to see exactly how we go. And I think that's why uh, uh, cryptocurrencies were created. But then exactly. that's all electronic. The government can track exactly. that very easily. Um, well, that's the, the, explosion, the explosion of Bitcoin. Right. Bitcoin has right. been created because that's the first step towards a digital currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, uh, it, it's, uh, there was an interesting uh, let, 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 uh, uh, little debate on uh, CNBC uh, earlier this yeah. evening between Robert Schiller, who wrote the book Irrational Exuberance about the uh, bubbles, and one of the panelists who's a big proponent of Bitcoin. And the question they were asking is, Bitcoin a bubble? And if you look at the chart of Bitcoin, it looks like the dot-com bu- uh, stocks from, uh, from the 1990s to 2000s. Where it went straight up from 1995 to 2000, and the uh, uh, Nasdaq uh, market went up tenfold in, in five years. Now that is a, that is a classic sign of a bubble. That's exactly what's happened to Bitcoin. That doesn't mean it can't go uh, higher, but the point is, um, uh, I just don't get Bitcoin. I mean, uh, all you're doing is taking, buying something uh, with dollars, so you could have something in a computer that is uh, priced in dollars uh, that may go up or down in value every single day. So I just don't get the, the, the uh, reliability of Bitcoin because it's not a fixed value. It's, uh, it's, just, an, it's just a digital entry 
so I don't understand right. why people want it. So Bitcoin yeah. is nearly $5,000 for Bitcoin. So let's say you buy Bitcoin tomorrow, that's $5,000, and the next day it's 4000 and you've held on to it. You just lost 20% of your money. Right, so but how, what I how, use it all over the the uh, internet, the, the bitcoins. Um, yeah, but the point is, one, on one a, of these pieces of money is that it has a relatively stable value from one day to the next, and so if something can go up or down by five, ten percent one day, it's really not a money. It's really a, a, nothing more than a speculative asset. Uh, so that's where I think the the yeah. flaw is in Bitcoin, uh, unless you buy it. And, sell it right away, uh, you're, you may be caught up in a downdraft. I saw what happened when China announced that it's uh, not allowing any more Bitcoin in the country. It plunged 5% in a, in a, in a, in a, almost in an instant. So the use of Bitcoin um, is showing all, uh, I say, Bitcoin is showing all signs of a speculative bubble, and it doesn't pass a very important test in um, as as a money, which means that that it has a really stable value from one day to the next. Well, yeah. I think I think I think, the, the, I think the, the the Bitcoin is just part of the solution that these bankers and these globalists are trying to uh, implement. Again, if you do, if you look at what's happening in 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 uh, India. Which is really going full force on cashless on a cashless society. If you go into the Asian countries, they're basically going through a very cashless. Everything is through a debit debit type of format. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. slowly but gradually moving away from the actual physical cash. Mm-hmm. But I have a question for you, uh, Mary, mm-hmm. and for the for the audience so they, to be informed. What is actually the true status of the Federal Reserve? Because from what I have investigated, they're truly not a government agency. Right. They're truly right. a very independent. They don't really – the Congress and the Senate and the, and, the, and, the, and the government does not have any jurisdiction over them. Is well, that true? The, or, or? the way it's structured is that the member banks in each region own stock in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Philadelphia, Boston, um, what is it, uh, 12 regional banks. And so they own stock, and the Federal Reserve um, makes a lot of money each year because uh, they earn money on the uh, their portfolio, which is all uh, gov- uh, government uh, securities, uh, treasury bills, notes, bonds. Now they own mortgage-backed securities, and they, uh, uh, and they make a huge profit every year that they turn over to the treasury. Uh, I think last year they turned over, I think, Sixty or eighty billion dollars to the U.S. Treasury, so it's it's a huge money machine uh, because they have the ability to print money and buy assets. Uh, we can't buy assets with money that we print. If we try to print that money, we got we get a knock on the door from the Secret Service because we're we're acting illegally. But uh, they have a legal authority that basically have a license to print money, and so they printed up four trillion dollars during the financial crisis. And they're earning interest. Let's say it's uh, two, three percent, whatever the case. Uh, that's a lot of money to earn three percent on four trillion dollars. That's 120 billion dollars a year. So they have a huge staff of economists and support help. And so um, uh, they're, they're basically a money machine. It's just an incredible phenomenon. Um, and it's, uh, people just don't know how the Federal Reserve works because it's too complicated for the average person to uh, to grasp so by speaking out about yeah, the reserve um, people can understand that the federal reserve uh, is not working in the interests of the american people but trying to manage the economy by manipulating interest rates which cause uh, which creates a um, a bubble but it also here's the important point about the federal reserve it basically robs Peter to pay Paul. Who's Peter? It's the low and middle income workers in the country. And, uh, and who's Paul? It's the 1%. In fact, the 1%ers love the Federal Reserve. How many 1%ers out there who criticize the Federal Reserve and what they do? Because the, the 1%ers understand that 
asset values increase much faster than the cost of living, and therefore uh, their net worth uh, increases dramatically over time. And Warren Buffett figured that out when he was um, a long time ago, back in the 1950s. And so he's been buying up assets and um, uh, companies and stocks, and uh, those have increased in value, and that's why uh, Berkshire Hathaway, when uh, he took it over in the 1960s, was worth 11 billion. I'm sorry, 11 million dollars, and now it's worth 400 billion dollars. Um, so he's added on more and more companies, more and more stock, but all asset values have gone up. I just look at Facebook and Google and uh, Amazon, and uh, you look at where they were 20, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and uh, Amazon has gone from an idea of selling books with a, a, a virtually zero net worth to, uh, what, uh, four, five, $500 billion today. Uh, but a- Apple mm-hmm. is a real company. It's grown enormously. Uh, so Apple is an example of a, a company that has grown because they have a product to sell. Um, but th- there, too, the stock is inflated because of what the Federal Reserve has done. But re- really where you see the Federal Reserve's impact uh, – mostly in the economies and housing prices. Because when we buy a, uh, an automobile, we, we buy a new automobile, we don't expect to, it to go up in value over 10 years. Yet when we buy a house, it tends to go up in value because, uh, because there's so much money being created, uh, housing prices go up, even though new houses are being built constantly and there's turnover in, in older homes. But uh, ha- house depreciates over time, so the price should either stay flat or go down, but yet they keep on going up over the long term. But yet there was an interesting study done by Schiller who pointed out over the long term, housing prices really don't do um, better than the rate of inflation, which is kind of interesting. Um, so that's another thing to keep in mind, to, for, especially for young people. Uh, the old um, um, the question, should I rent or should I buy? And uh, some people argue that... Uh, over the long term, people should um, should rent because they should invest and and take advantage of the inflation that's going to increase asset values, especially stocks, over the long term. And that remember, with houses, you have to pay real estate taxes, you have to pay um, all sorts of other expenses to upkeep the house. Uh, but with right. uh, renting, um, but rent see. Renting right now uh, may be uh, uh, not a good decision compared to owning because interest rates are so low. Interest wow. rates are artificially low, and therefore right, right, right. Uh, uh, housing prices uh, keep on increasing over time because uh, uh, the new money flows into the demand for housing, and therefore you get um, housing prices are just really out of sight. San Francisco, Boston... New York City, um, New Jersey, Flo- uh, Florida has picked up quite a bit since the um, the crash in uh, 07 and 08. So housing prices have come back, and um, you can follow that. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, keeps the Case-Shiller Index, which is the index developed by um, Professor Schiller and his colleague uh, Case. And uh, you can see housing prices have been on a strong upswing for the past uh, six, seven years. Well, if I may... Interject. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the reasons, housing prices. I mean, housing. There's been a boom in housing, is because major, the large majority of the purchases have been by foreigners. The average American today is not able to buy a home mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're so indebted. I, when I lived in New Jersey, I owned two, a condo and a. And I, and I sold it. I'm renting now. Why? Because I believe that at this moment, the, bu- the housing market is also is a bubble. It's, a bit, it's been inflated because of all these foreigners coming in and buying. That's my take on it. Yes, I was able to benefit from the tax credits and all that stuff, but in the, in the long run, if you live in the state of New Jersey, they're going to you know, hit you with the gas tax. They're going to hit you with all. So it, basically, you even out. Sometimes they even lose. At the end, probably lose even more. Yes. So I, I think renting is the way to go now. Especially, as, especially if you, as you get older, you don't want to have, you don't want to be carrying a mortgage 
once you hit your 60s and 70s. That's not an idea right. of mm-hmm. retiring. Well, th- th- uh, right. this is, yeah, this is why you really have to sit down and see what your long-term goals are. In other words, if you live in a house, uh, see buy a house in your late 20s, early 30s, and you expect to live in it for a long, long time, that may be a good decision given that interest rates are so low. And, and by the time you retire, you have the uh, your mortgages paid off if you take a 30-year mortgage and you're at 30 or 32 or 35 and you live in the house for 30 years. Um, that may be one of your better decisions. Um, so it really depends on your time horizon, uh, your, the lifestyle you want to live, and, and so forth and so forth. Uh, in other words, every, uh, it's not a decision that is um, – it's not every solution. The solution is not for everybody. In other words, you really have to sit right. down and evaluate your own personal situation. Um, but, the, but the point is you, you look at the price of uh, certain things today, and um, uh, we know that the most – the areas where prices have gone up the most uh, because of the Fed's monetary policy and where the government has the most intervention – it's in education and healthcare, and housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in my um, in my manuscript, I have a chart showing that um, uh, where uh, the greatest impact of the Fed's monetary policy is typically in areas where the federal federal government has a major impact, uh, and that is of course um, healthcare. Uh, because of Medicare and Medicaid and all the regulations that they impose on uh, the health industry and um, and education with all the subsidies and loans uh, that are out there. So uh, the simple answer is that government is a poor steward of the people's money. That's what it comes down to, is who's best able to manage the income that you earn. And that's why I wrote Tax-Free 2000 back in the 90s, to point out how we could have a tax-free society and um, a monetary system based upon a real asset like gold as opposed to a computer entry like the Federal Reserve because you cannot manipulate the supply of gold. Gold um, uh, has to be dug out of the ground, and some people think that's a waste of resources, uh, but that's a natural monetary uh, unit if you study the history of money, it has to. Money came about because of uh, it was valuable as a commodity, and so money historically has always been a commodity. Whether it was um, something that wasn't very durable, like tobacco, um, or something that um, or salt or something like that, but uh, gold and silver have all the elements, characteristics of money that's to, that uh, the economic textbooks talk about. It's durable. It lasts. I mean, gold that people have in wedding bands could be in gold that could have been uh, a thousand years old. Um, it's homogeneous. You can cut up gold to really small pieces. It's um, it's um, portable. It has a high value per unit. So all these characteristics that economists uh, write about in their textbooks uh, go out the window when they talk about the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve's money is none of that. Uh, so. We are in, I think, a crossroads in our in our monetary history because the Federal Reserve has been a total failure. One of the uh, components of the Federal Reserve Act was that the Fed was supposed to keep the purchasing power of the dollar stable, and we know that hasn't happened because the value of the dollar has declined more than 95% since the Federal Reserve um, uh, began operations in 1914. So just from that one... Um, goal that they have, they've been a total failure. And so, therefore, we should start questioning uh, why we have a Federal Reserve and how to replace it with um, a real monetary system that reflects um, uh, honesty. Because if, money, if, if, the, if the purchasing power of the currency declines, uh, th- that means it's being manipulated because the purchasing power of a currency should be increasing because in the free market, Prices go down uh, year after year as there's, what, more inventions, greater productivity, uh, more innovation. And that's how the standard of living spreads to everybody. Everyone who's working in the economy will see their real income go up year after year, whether it's 1%, 2%, or 3%. That's how living standards increase from generation to generation. 
And so what we've seen in the United States in the last 20 years or longer is that uh, living standards for a vast majority of people have been stagnant uh, between um, inflation and uh, taxes. Uh, the average person has not been able to uh, keep up with um, the decline in the person power of the dollar. And, and I think that's one of the reasons there's a lot of frustration in, in the United States. That's why there's so much uh, angst, if you will, among people at the low and middle income uh, levels. And that, I think, helps explain why Donald Trump got elected, because people got laid off um, during the Great Recession, and they haven't seen any, um, any um, salary increases. So they're really getting behind. Uh, their standard of living is, has been declining, which is very frustrating for a lot of people, uh, especially if you've got a family to raise in, um, in middle America, and that's where Trump did relatively well. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, hold on. I want to ask a question. Um, getting back to the, the bubble, um, we don't usually um, talk about the student loan. Um, right. You know, particularly higher education. And a lot of people seem to ignore that that is going to bubble up at some point. Oh, Plus there's the no question about it. To college I mean, yeah. As well. yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the whole point. This is why I think the Federal Reserve officials and other central bankers that meet in Basel, as Ruben pointed out, uh, are trying to figure out what happens if, what happens if uh, the student debt bubble pops? What if the auto um, uh, loan bubble pops? So we have all this debt out there, and we know debt is potentially deflationary because uh, debt is based upon credit, and when you we have bad debts, you liquidate credit, and therefore there is less money because our money is credit-based because the Federal Reserve creates money when it uh, buys bonds, when it buys uh, uh, assets such as uh, mortgage-backed securities and uh, other financial instruments uh, that's in the portfolio. So, um, and that money then becomes used for um, borrowing and lending uh, in the banking system and, and at the federal government level. And so, if you go back before the Great Depression, people hated debt. The average person hated debt. Remember, there were no credit cards back then. There's really no checking accounts for most people. They use cash. They use uh, gold and silver coins or um, or um, uh, banknotes. Uh, banknotes that were redeemable into uh, gold and silver and um, people had a much different outlook uh, saving was an, an integral part of uh, their existence that you saved for the proverbial rainy day and uh, remember most people were working on farms so you had to save because what if you have a bad crop so, um, so it was a much different financial system it was a much different uh, economic system, but then when the Industrial Revolution took off after the Civil War, that's when uh, uh, financial instruments became a little bit more sophisticated, uh, but the banks were always in trouble, as I pointed out earlier. Um, they were always inflating uh, from day one of, of, um, of in American history, and even before the country was formed, banks were inflating uh, during the colonial period. So we had episodes of... Um, problems in Massachusetts and other colonies where uh, bankers or the government was in, inflating. And so um, uh, the evolution of the money and banking system is a fascinating story. It's really about the growth of America and that um, I think we're coming at the end of the line, whether that line is another three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, nobody knows. But when I first learned about this in the late 60s and early 1970s, uh, the conclusion I reached is that uh, when the um, when the U.S. dollar is no longer demanded around the world, then then the United States government has to restructure and we have to go back to a gold-based monetary system because if the dollar falls in value, that means imports are going to increase and that means inflation is going to skyrocket. So I've always looked at the value of the dollar as oh. sort of a key barometer as the world's confidence in the U.S. economy and the U.S. government. And um, what's happened this year is that the U.S. dollar has gone down in value and gold has gone up. So something may be happening around the world where people are very nervous about holding dollars and are getting rid of dollars to buy gold, silver, and other commodities, which have been increasing price like copper and uh, other um, 
basic commodities. So something may be happening right now that we could see accelerating next year or the year after, and that's why I'm, look, I'm well, looking at this uh, very closely to, uh, to monitor well, what's, what's happening in the international uh, economy. I, I think, Mary, I, I think what, what, what I see is that we have an overinflated stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's number one. I mean, I, I, I believe that the government continues to do the QE1, the QE2, the QE3. You know, it's been basically pouring money into, into the market. Uh, institutional investors, uh, real, real true middle American investors, very few to none. The big money is there. And there's, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of, People may say that that's not happening. Inside trading is happening, and, and it's pushing the market to numbers that do not warrant the profit base of the majority of American companies. You know, and today, can we really rely on, a, 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 on, on the books of these companies? No, not after Enron and not after all these. So I think a lot of foreign – that's the reason I think Germany and some of these countries – they want their goal back. They do not have that trust and confidence. Not, and I'm not saying because of Donald Trump. I think the past eight years, yeah, there was yeah, a loss of confidence in the global investors. Well, there's, in, there's no question the about it. Yeah. People, people are very anxious. They're nervous. They, uh, they're concerned not only about the monetary system. They're concerned about the geopolitical system around the world as well whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in uh, Korea, uh, people have concerns that uh, uh, there's going to be a destabilization um, geopolitically, a massive destabilization that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, there could be a run on uh, paper money, not only in the United States, but around the world. And remember, the Chinese have trillions of dollars of um, of uh, U.S. government securities and, and cash, uh, U.S. corporations have two trillion dollars in cash overseas. So the world is awash in liquidity. The question is, uh, where does this liquidity go when people's perceptions of risk changes? That's really what we're talking about. If, if, if people have low uh, risk uh, outlook, they'll keep on holding U.S. dollars. But if they get very nervous. Uh, they'll uh, move those dollars into um, exchange them for um, for uh, hard assets and uh, stocks and bonds and whatever they think will um, will preserve their purchasing power of, of their money. So uh, uh, this thing unfolds. Uh, we're watching it um, constantly, and um, every day seems to be um, uh, a, a new uh, perception out there. And that's why that's what makes markets. People are buying. People are selling. And that's all based upon their risk assessment, whether it's of the earnings of the companies or the uh, stability of countries or the uh, uh, potential for war. So there's a, a lot of things going into people's minds, uh, and that's what moves markets. So whether it's the foreign exchange market or the commodities market, stock market, bond market, real estate market. So um, all we have to do is... Uh, uh, learn what's going on, uh, and then take uh, appropriate action to preserve our assets. Uh, and that's why um, people have said, uh, especially the 1%, is that you should not have too much cash, even though Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, has $100 billion in cash because he can't find anything of value to buy. So he knows that things are inflated, and he's holding on to cash. Um, so we'll see exactly what he does. It, in the next uh, few years, uh, uh, with all that uh, cash that's been accumulating in the uh, in, in the portfolio of uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Doctor, say when you have an event coming up this weekend. Yes, I'll be the keynote speaker in Philadelphia at the end of Fed rally in front of the Philadelphia Reserve Bank. There's a Facebook page there. It's called End of Fed uh, Philly, and you can go there and uh, see. You, who the speakers will be, and I'll be uh, speaking from 3.30 to 4 o'clock. And uh, the weather looks like it's going to be good, so you can come out and uh, hear all these uh, speakers uh, talk about uh, freedom and independence, uh, where the Declaration of Independence was signed and the Liberty Bell is located. 
and why we need honest money in America and why the Federal Reserve should be abolished because it uh, doesn't do what it said it was going to do. It's, it's, um, it's manipulating the economy and manipulating interest rates, and we need to go back to honesty and money, and that's really what the uh, rally is all about. Yep. Well, I, I wish I was... I, I wish I was. I wish I was going to see you, Professor. Well, the thing is, I'm going to make a presentation <laughs> on on the um, research that I did on sabbatical last semester. It'll be November 15th at Ramapo College. I'll have it uh, on my uh, blog, MurraySabrin.com, okay. probably in about a month or so, with all the details of. Uh, it'll be a free event, so people can see all the. Um, um, Research that I've done, I'm going to have a very extensive PowerPoint presentation. So uh, hopefully, right. your listeners will be able to uh, come up to the college at Rampo College in Mawa and um, see the presentation of my research findings about the Federal Reserve. Fantastic! I think there's, I think there's something that a lot of people do not know. Besides what Doreen just mentioned about Jekyll and Hyde Island and and, and this whole. There's a lot of no, individuals. People don't even know the island exists. Exactly. Well, if they don't know the island exists, they definitely do not know what the London Interbank offer rate is, mm-hmm. also known as LIBOR, the LIBOR rate. Uh, I think it would be good for if you can go over it because a lot of people are confused. They, they basically believe that when you go for a, a mortgage, or to rent, uh, buy a car, to finance, the interest rate, the housing rate, all those rates are actually set by the London Interbank offer rate. And, well, it's based, people, upon the, it's based upon that. Uh, I mean, the mortgage rates uh, are really based upon the 10-year note for the most part. So the 10-year note, I think, is around 3%, so more, uh, or maybe a little bit less, and so I think you can get a 15-year uh, mortgage now for about 3% and a year mortgage for around, uh, let me see, what did I see recently in the paper? Um, maybe 3.5%. So right. the, 10-year, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note is sort of a benchmark for a lot of interest rates in the United States. Um, and then you have the prime rate, which is charged their best customers. Um, that's usually around uh, 3 4% above the Fed funds rate or the T-bill rate. So um, I think, I, well, I, I think it's about 3%. I haven't looked at it recently. I think the prime rate is in the, in the 3% area also. So the interest rates are very low. That's why corporations have been borrowing money uh, left and right because it's so cheap. Remember, interest rates, interest is tax deductible for corporations as it is for individuals for, um, for mortgages. So the after-tax cost of debt has, has, is really very low. So people have an uh, have an inducement to take on a lot of debt, which is good if you can manage that debt. It's not so good when people were borrowing money and leveraging to buy houses and other assets during the housing bubble, and um, that's when people get into trouble when they expect housing prices to keep on going. If you saw the movie The Big Short, a, a wonderful movie based upon the book by Michael Lewis, where average people were buying condos and uh, condo prices go up, then they would uh, get a mortgage to buy a second condo and a third condo. So people were had five, six condos in the expectation that the rents were going to cover the uh, mortgage payment and, inter- and, uh, and, um, and um, real estate taxes. And then when the bubble burst, uh, they couldn't afford the uh, the payments, and so housing prices spiraled down. Uh, there were some instances in Florida, I heard, where condo prices were down 60 70 80%. So that's an extraordinary, um, that's an extraordinary yeah, okay, guys, drop in prices. Yeah. i, I got to cut you because we're running out of time. Um, Dr. Sabrin, can you tell us your website again? MurraySabrin.com, M U. Double R A Y S A B R I N dot com. Uh, I'll be putting some original material on in the future. Right now, because I'm working on a, a, my second book for this year, I've been just posting articles that I think are really terrific from other websites, which highlight 
the uh, challenges we face economically, politically, uh, internationally. And I only put, put a few on per day because I'm so busy with my research now and I'm going back to teaching on Friday. So uh, what I hope right. to do is make presentations about my uh, sabbatical research uh, throughout New Jersey and the New York area. So anyone who wants to contact me can contact me through the website and um, we can talk about arrangements to make a presentation about the Federal Reserve and financial bubbles. Awesome. Fantastic. And um, I'd like to thank thank you for coming on. And um, we are out of time. And let's not forget about the event on Saturday. It's Independence, 10 North Independence Mall, West Philadelphia. Dr. Murray Saban will be speaking there. Um, and he mentioned the time, I guess, at, at 3 o'clock. Well, the, um, the event is from um, 12 to 4, 12 and I'll to be 4. the keynote speaker at okay. 3.30 to 4 o'clock. Okay, awesome. Um, and Ruben, do you want to do the closure? Yes. I just want to mention to all our listeners that we are at a critical stage in regards to our international affairs starting with the situation in North Korea, President Trump has to take a, a real tough stand with China because we know that China controls North Korea. In order to avoid a disaster, okay. President Trump has to really put sanctions on China in order to curtail North Korea's violence. Uh, okay. Ruben's going to leave you with that thought. We'll pick it up next week. Definitely. Yeah, I thank our listeners for listening in, and we'll see you next week, next Wednesday at 9 p.m. And I'm going to play from Madison Rising, the Star Spangled Banner. You'll be able to enjoy it right now.
Let's go. 